Hello, I'm Richard Walker. Welcome to the final post about the life and times of Annie Chapman. It's not difficult to find articles pointing out the fact that eyewitness evidence is unreliable. Here's one article in Scientific American, published on January the 1st, 2010. It began, In 1984, Kirk Bloodsworth was convicted of the rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl and sentenced to the gas chamber, an outcome that rested largely on the testimony of five eyewitnesses. After Bloodsworth served nine years in prison, DNA testing proved him to be innocent. Such devastating mistakes by eyewitnesses are not rare, according to a report by the Innocence Project. Since the 1990s, when DNA testing was first introduced, Innocence Project researchers have reported that 73% of the 239 convictions overturned through DNA testing were based on eyewitness testimony. In the case of Jack the Ripper, Mrs. Elizabeth Long is a celebrated eyewitness, and her evidence is included in almost every book published on the subject. The reason is explained in the Ultimate Jack the Ripper source book. The first probable sighting of the killer by the witness Mrs. Long also occurred in this case, in the hunt for Jack the Ripper. A probable sighting has to be a big deal. And in Jack the Ripper, Scotland Yard Investigates, which Stuart Evans co-authored with Donald Rumbelow, they expand on why the police surgeon's evidence of time of death is unreliable. At the same time, they go to some lengths to explain any contradictions in the eyewitness evidence. Eyewitness evidence which is incompatible with the time of death given by the divisional police surgeon Dr. George Baxter Phillips. These writers are not alone. In his book, The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, Philip Sugden explains these murders by saying, Indeed, his victims, prostitutes all, accustomed to accosting men and taking them to dark and unfrequented byways and yards for sex, greatly facilitated his crimes. Mrs. Long's evidence, of course, supports this theory. And Philip Sugden writes that, At about five in the morning, a Mrs. Elizabeth Long left her home at 32 Church Street to go to work at Spitalfields Market. It was 5.30 as she walked westwards through Hanbury Street. She was sure of the time because she heard the clock of the Black Eagle Brewery in Brick Lane strike the half hour just before she got to the street. A man and a woman were standing on the pavement near to number 29. The woman had her back to Spitalfields Market and hence faced Mrs. Long as she approached, and the man's back was turned towards Mrs. Long and Brick Lane. Mrs. Long's evidence is crucial, for she later visited the mortuary and positively identified Annie Chapman as the woman she had seen. Her companion was almost certainly the murderer. At the inquest, Mrs. Long did her best to describe him. Mrs. Long said she didn't see the man's face, but noticed that he was dark. He was wearing a brown, low-crowned felt hat. She said, I think he had on a dark coat. By the look of him, he seemed to me a man over 40 years of age. He appeared to me to be a little taller than the deceased. He looked like a foreigner. I should say he looked like what I should call shabby genteel. I overheard him say to her, Will you? And she replied, Yes. Philip Sugden says Mrs. Long's crucial evidence shows that this man was almost certainly the murderer. 
And so, of course, it shows exactly what he and most modern experts believe, that Annie Chapman brought about her own death by accosting a man and taking him to a dark and unfrequented yard for sex. The first thing that must be said is that at 5.30, 29 Hanbury Street was neither dark nor unfrequented. There's a very good description in Philip Sugden's book. He says, As the sun rose at 5.23, there were plenty of people about. Spitalfields Market opened at 5. This end of Hanbury Street was clogged with vehicles. And Philip Sugden goes on to say, When the killer and his victim entered number 29, the house itself was rapidly coming to life. In slaughtering Annie when and where he did, the murderer had thus taken an extraordinary risk. It definitely all makes for an exciting story. Of course, that whole tale hangs on Mrs. Long and her crucial evidence, evidence she was giving on September the 19th, eleven days after the murder. Was she such a strong witness that her evidence could overturn Dr. Phillips' expert opinion of the time of death? Given what modern studies have shown about false memory and the unreliability of eyewitness accounts, Mrs. Long's recall seems truly remarkable, especially when you consider that when the coroner asked her if it was unusual to see a man and woman standing there talking at that hour, she said, Oh no, I see lots of them standing there in the morning. That's why I didn't take much notice of them. Of course, in saying she didn't take much notice of the couple, Mrs. Long was simply explaining why it took her three days before deciding that the police might be interested in what she had seen. And the police were sufficiently interested that she was granted access to the mortuary, where she was able to say that she was sure that one of the faces she walked past four days earlier during her half-hour walk to work was the face of the murder victim. It's impressive. Perhaps it's worth thinking of a busy street you were walking down three days ago, and then try to describe to yourself one of the people you passed by, who you didn't take much notice of, and check the level of your recall against the detailed description given by Mrs. Long of the foreign-looking gentleman. Of course, if three days ago you walked past Boris Johnson or your mother, you'd have no trouble, but Mrs. Long didn't know Annie Chapman. But... If Mrs. Long was right, as the coroner and indeed modern writers seem to think, then it certainly confirms the theory that this 48-year-old woman who was in very poor health and had had no sleep since she told a friend the evening before that she was too ill to do anything, managed, after being kicked out of Crossingham's Doss House just before two in the morning, to search the streets for three and a half hours before arriving at the west end of Hanbury Street where, among the many people and clogged market vehicles, she finally found a man who she could accost and take, after the September sun had risen, through the front door of a house which, as Philip Sugden says, was busy with people going to work. Now, it could have happened that way. But do you think it could be possible that Mrs. Long made up her story in order to get her 15 minutes of fame and a free pass to view Annie Chapman's dead body in the mortuary? What if Annie Chapman leaves Crossingham's Doss House, and rather than searching the streets for three and a half hours, she walks 500 yards to a house she knows well? And she did know it. When John Richardson's mother, Amelia Richardson, saw Annie's body, she recognised her. She said that many times Annie had called at number 29, and Amelia Richardson said she had 
bought needlework and crochet work that Annie had made. So Annie knows the house. She knows that it is led out in rooms, and as a result the front door and the door to the yard are left unlocked. She goes through to the yard, and then this poor little woman huddles down between the steps and the fence, and, exhausted, falls into a deep sleep. A few hours later, John Richardson arrives and checks out the padlock on the cellar door. He holds open the door to the yard, a door that is hiding the sleeping Annie. He leaves, and then another man checks out the yard, and there, huddled in the corner, he sees her. It's just irresistible fun. And who'll miss one more drab little woman? And there's another possibility. John Richardson, the man who claimed the yard was empty a quarter to five, lived two minutes' walk from 29 Hanbury Street in what was called John Street, and is now called Dray Walk, like Flower and Dean Street, close to where the five victims lived, and less than 20 minutes to each of the murder sites. The police were interested in John Richardson, because he changed his story. Around 7am, he returned from Spitalfields Market, saying he had just heard about the murder. He told the police that he had called in to number 29 on his way to work. Although he didn't go into the yard, he just looked in to make sure that the padlock on the cellar door was okay, and then he went to work. It was pointed out at the inquest that the door to the yard hinged on the left and opened into the yard, and so he couldn't have known that Annie wasn't lying near the fence because the door would have hidden her body. So on the fourth day of the inquest, when he gave his evidence, he said that what he actually did was sit on the top step with his feet in the yard. So he would have seen that area of the yard. He was asked why, seeing as he was on his way to work, why did he sit on the top step? He, he said that there was a piece of leather on his boot that he needed to cut off. Now, that was interesting to the good folk at the inquest. So he was asked, what do you to cut the leather. He said, a knife. Accompanied by a police sergeant, John Richardson went to get the knife. The knife he showed the inquest was a blunt and broken dessert knife. Clever, because it could not possibly have done the damage to Annie Chapman. However, it was pointed out that neither could it have cut the leather. So John says he made a mistake. He, he remembered... He had to borrow a knife when he got to Spitalfields Market. He would have had no trouble, of course, because an essential tool needed to deal with sack, string and rope was a sharp knife for all market porters. The question that perhaps should have been asked was why he was going to work carrying a blunt and broken dessert knife, which couldn't even cut leather. The police, however, lost interest when Mrs Long arrived and told everybody that Annie Chapman was alive and well, half an hour after John Richardson was busy being a porter at Spitalfields Market, which opened at five o'clock. It might be worth pointing out that Church Street, where Mrs. Long lived, is now called Fernier Street, and number 32 is a very convenient two-minute walk from Spitalfields Market, and indeed less than three minutes from 29 Hanbury Street. What was Mrs. Long doing for the other 27 minutes that meant she was walking down Hanbury Street at 5.30? Now, it's possible she had a Pilates class or the equivalent. But nobody asked her why she left home at 5 a.m. and deliberately made herself late for work that morning by the detour she took. What if the police surgeon was right in his estimate 
that she was murdered at least two hours before he first examined her, so before 4.20, when it was still dark and Spitalfields Market had yet to come to life. What if John Richardson was checking for anybody dossing in the yard before 4.20? He sees the sleeping Annie curled up between the steps and the fence. He grabs her by the throat and then pulls out his knife. And then made up a story about the yard being empty at quarter to five to give himself an alibi. On the subject of John Richardson being a suspect, he does fit a 1988 FBI profile by Special Agent John Douglas, who suggested that the suspect known as Jack the Ripper might have had the following traits. Age, between 28 and 36. Tick. Local, ordinary. Well, he lived right there in John Street, and he was a porter at Spitalfields Market, so tick. Domineering mother? Weak or absent father? Well, his mother Amelia was very religious, and she ran the family packing case business. His father was deceased. So, yes, Tick had likely been interviewed during the investigation. Oh, yes, Tick. It's possible. Well, thank you for staying with me, and I hope you'll join me for my next post, when we will begin looking at the life and times of the third victim, Liz Stride. Thank you for listening, and I hope that I'll get to meet you on one of my Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel walks. Bye for now.